Hello, welcome to episode number 131 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong. This is our last episode of 2020. In it, we hear from Gulay Tukmen. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Göttingen and the author of Under the Banner of Islam, Turks, Kurds and the Limits of Religious Unity, due to be published by Oxford University Press in February. The book explores the complex role that religion plays in Turkey's Kurdish conflict. It interrogates the idea, popular among many in Turkey, that religion, Islam specifically, can be a unifying force that bridges ethnic or linguistic divides between Turks and Kurds. It also examines the perhaps surprising role that religion continues to play in Kurdish politics, where it's sometimes been adapted as a tool of resistance among Kurdish nationalists. Both of those tendencies actually have very deep roots going right back to the 19th century that we discuss in our conversation. Conversation. But before we get started, let me just remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews that were not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloom's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome, but so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Gulay Tukmen. The research for her book was conducted over a number of years going right back to 2012 and 2013 in eastern and southeastern Anatolia. Back then, of course, the atmosphere nationally and in the region was very different from today. The book talks about many locals being cautiously optimistic that the conflict between Turkey and the PKK could finally come to an end. Since then, of course, things have taken a much harsher nationalist turn and prospects of a new peace process are very distant indeed. So I started by asking Gulay Turkmen to reflect on that shift. I, I first went to Diyarbakir in June 2012 and there were some clashes still like taking place between the PKK and the uh, Turkish Armed Forces but it was a much more hopeful atmosphere and people thought that finally there's an end in sight for this conflict. The overall atmosphere was much more hopeful. I think people had really high hopes and they thought if there is one moment where this conflict will come to an end 
moment, it's going to be this moment. But staying there and conducting research, I realized actually that was mostly what you saw on the face of it. And as you dig further, you could see that there were a lot of questions and people were, you know, not sure about a particular aspects of the peace process and negotiations. However, when I went in 2013, in the summer of 2013, that was like when people were really, really hopeful. You could even see the difference between 2012 and 2013, because in the spring of 2013, in the Nevroz celebrations in the Arbaker, Abdullah Öcalan, the imprisoned leader of the PKK, he sent a letter from the prison and he was calling for peace and the government at the time and the prime minister at the time, Erdogan, was also calling for peace. So it sounded like both parties finally found a common ground and that everyone was ready to actually sign a peace agreement. So in the summer of 2013, when I conducted follow-up interviews, that was when people were really hopeful. So you could even see that difference. But of course, now it's like a completely different time period and a completely different geography because all that hope is lost and we are back to a very much security-oriented approach in the conflict, especially on the side of the state, but also on the side of the PKK too. And after 2015, the summer of 2015, when the peace talks collapsed, the clashes have intensified, more than 3,500 people have died. So all that hope is lost. And now there are a lot of Kurdish politicians being jailed day after day. There are new arrests in the region. So I think on the part of the state, there is a ve- like very much turn back to this ultranationalist, security-oriented approach. I've been talking to some people from the region and they're like, you know, 2012 and 2013 seems like a distant past now, even though it's been only like seven years. Things have changed so drastically that even mentioning peace now is sometimes considered a crime. So it's very, very different. Yeah, the atmosphere is considerably different than when I conducted my research. And that was like when I was over the years when I was uh, writing the book, actually, that was one of the biggest difficulties for me because I was writing certain sections and I'm like, I can't believe that things were so different. So yes, things have changed drastically from when I conducted research. So the book interrogates this central idea that was, and actually is, pursued and promoted by the AK Party of President Erdogan, that uh, Islam, by acting as a bridge between Sunni Muslim Turks and Sunni Muslim Kurds, could be a remedy for Mm -hmm. Turkey's Kurdish conflict. This Mm -hmm. idea of uh, Muslim fraternity, religion used as a kind of counterweight to subdue Kurdish nationalism. Could you just summarize the thinking behind this idea? Was it just a rhetorical shift or what did the government do in practice? Well, we we always need to keep in mind that on the face of it, it's very much rhetoric. But I think uh, what I tried to do in the book was to kind of provide a historical background to where this discourse originates from. I think, especially in the case of Erdogan, being the pragmatist politician he is, he switches from one discourse to another quite easily, like as it fits the requirements of the day and the internal political atmosphere, like whatever it requires he shifts between these different discourses. But I think in the case of this emphasis on Muslim unity, what was more surprising than Erdogan's emphasis 
was Öcalan's emphasis on Sunni Islam acting as a tool of unification. Because, yes, one could expect Erdogan to put emphasis on this, especially thinking about his background, right? Like coming from an Islamist uh, background. But when Erdogan and Öcalan, for example, in 2013, they even cited the same hadith, one of Prophet Muhammad's sayings, to emphasize that Kurds and Turks are Muslim brothers and they have been living under the same banner of Islam. That's where actually the name of the book originates from, under the banner of Islam. So that was, I think, very interesting, like coming from Öcalan, this emphasis on Muslim unity. And as for Erdogan, if you look back to history and to the parties that preceded Erdogan's AKP, the AKP is kind of like an offshoot of welfare party, Refah Partisi, and the leader of Refah Partisi, Erbakan, also underlined Islam as a, a unifying tool between Sunni Muslim Kurds and Turks. So I think keeping in mind the Islamic tradition um, that Erdogan is coming from, he might have really believed that Islam could have acted as a resolution tool. So one thing that this government did in terms of practical implementation of this belief, let's say, was they introduced this plan to hire Kurdish meles. Mele is a local name given to Kurdish imams. In Turkey, all imams are appointed by the state through the president's religious affairs, the Diyanet. However, in the Kurdish region, you find these uh, local religious leaders, imams, who were trained in madrasas, and madrasas are Islamic schools, which have been banned in Turkey since 19 24. But the state said that, okay, so the Diyanet appointed imams in the Kurdish majority cities, sometimes like they are not as respected as the local imams in the region. So the state said, okay, we are going to hire a thousand local uh, meles imams. And that was, I think, a move, a practical move on the side of the state. Another change that they introduced was in Turkey, again, all mosques are state-run mosques. And the Friday sermons in the mosques are written and sent by the Diyanets from one center, from the center in Ankara, and they are distributed to the mosques in Turkey. And all the imams during the Friday sermons, they have to read these sermons. But what the AKP did was to change that. They didn't give full independence to the imams, but they kind of gave autonomy, and they gave this muftis, and muftis are the highest religious authority in every city. They said, okay, every mufti has the right to prepare the sermons, the Friday sermons, as they like. And that was a big change. And that was very much underlined by the imams I talked to in the region, because they kind of saw this as a move towards autonomy and as a move towards expanding their their area of influence. So those two changes, I think, could be cited as the practical implementations of this discourse and why it was not just a discursive move. It also translated into the practical realm. However, the imams in the region, they also, the, the main issue when I first went to the region was that they wanted to be able to give the Friday sermons in Kurdish. And this was never allowed. For a while, it was allowed de facto. The jure, it was still prohibited. But in villages or in small towns, the imams were able to give the Friday sermons in Kurdish. But they wanted this to be legalized. And they were like saying, the Kurdish imams were telling me, you know, we are Kurdish, our Jamaat, the, the people who attend the mosque, 90% of them are Kurdish.
Kurdish, why are we not allowed to give our sermons in Kurdish? So yeah, I think it was discursive to a certain extent, but it also had repercussions on the ground. Now, one of the reasons why this idea of Muslim fraternity seems to appeal uh, is because religion is generally seen to be more important in the southeast and the mm -hmm. uh, Kurdish population is generally seen as being more traditional. Uh, but your book explores the failings of this Muslim mm -hmm. fraternity project, why it's not resonated well among many Sunni Turks and Kurds. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk about why a key reason for the failure of uh, this overarching Muslim unity idea is the persistence, really, of uh, Turkish nationalism. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a quote from the book that I'll just read out. You say, quote, even though most Muslim Turks start the conversations with an emphasis on broader Muslim unity, in the course of a short interview, they switch to a nationalist discourse emphasizing the indispensability of Turks and Turkish. Although mm. they claim that the Kurds and Turks are all one in their Muslim identity, rather than embracing this claim, they endorse the hierarchical ordering of different ethnicities in a religious context in which the Turks are deemed superior to Kurds. By portraying Turks as the most indispensable part of the Muslim Ummah, Turkishness is privileged and Muslimness loses its importance. Mm -hmm. So there you're basically arguing that the uh, essentially the Turkish Islamic synthesis puts this barrier in front of this more expansive idea of religious unity, finding a solution on the Kurdish issue. Could you just mm -hmm. expand a bit on this theme? You know, what are the concrete examples from uh, your research led you to this conclusion? Yeah, sure. This was something that came up in my interviews with Turkish Muslims from different backgrounds. You know, like they, they all start these interviews with an emphasis on Muslim unity and that, yes, it would be great if we all prioritize our Muslim identity. But then as you talk with them a little bit further, then they kind of give away this prioritization of the Turkish ethnic identity. And they give examples from history, for example, they say, oh, you know, in during the Ottoman times, like under the uh, Ottoman Caliphate, uh, Turks were leading the Muslim world. You know, they, they always try to justify this emphasis on why Turks should be leading. Yes, you know, there should be a Muslim ummah, but Turks should be leading. And, and Another, for example, another example that came up was we are one body, like we are acting as one single body with the Kurds and the Kurds are like the heart of the body or they are very courageous. They can, you know, like fight very gallantly in a battle, but the Turks are the head because like they are the brain, you know, they can think about the strategies and how to move forward in the battle. So like they came up with all these metaphors to emphasize how Turks should be somehow leading this unified Muslim entity. And that's when I realized uh, this Turkish Islamic synthesis is very much ingrained in their way of thinking. For example, one interview that I conducted with a Turkish Muslim woman, she said, I have been involved in you know, Turkish Islamic circles for a long time. And when I started defending equal rights for Kurds, I have been labeled as a Kurdophile, Kurdçü, which I think it's difficult to translate, but Kurd lover, Kurdophile. And she was like, but we were actually fighting for the rights of Palestinians and no one labeled us as, you know, Filistinji. Or uh, when we were defending the rights of other Muslim groups, no one really thought to put those labels on us. So she was like, that's when I realized that this really belief in like Turkish superiority 
really comes to ground, especially when Kurds are at stake. And and in the book, what I do is to under really go back in time to mid 19th century to see how this Turkish Islamic synthesis originated, because we cannot really understand today's politics without having a detailed look at the evolution of these ideas starting from the 19th century in the Ottoman Empire, because you really see the reflections of those in the interviews that I conducted with these different uh, religious elites. So yeah, like I go back to mid-19th century and I look at the birth of Turkism, Islamism, Ottomanism as different and competing, at times competing, ideologies. And I give an account of how over time it evolved into Turkish Islamic synthesis and how we can see the influence of it in the current day speeches of politicians like Erdogan. It's very much visible uh, actually since the 1980s, but even before that, you can see it being very influential in the political arena, especially in the right-wing parties. Even now, like most of the right-wing parties, they all have a different version of this Turkish Islamic synthesis where Turkishness is seen as superior than Kurdish or Arab or any other, you know, like ethnic identity that you can see. I cite Boris Unnu's book, The Turkishness Contract. And I think that book also does a great job of showing how, over time, Turkishness became the differentiating identity that prioritizes Turks as the real citizens of the republic. When you look at the moment where the republic was established, you see the main distinction that was being employed was between Muslims and non-Muslims. But Kurds being Sunni Muslims, Muslims, it didn't really evolve into an advantage over time for them being Sunni Muslim because ethnicity was still very much an important factor. You mentioned the history there. You make the point in the book that the uh, that the authorities, going back to the Ottoman era, have really since mm-hmm. the uh, early 19th century essentially attempted to uh, use religious sympathies to draw the Kurds into the orbit of the center uh, mm-hmm. in order to achieve various state goals. So you give the example in the book of the uh, Hamidiye regiments, these cavalry yeah. regiments that were organized by then Sultan Abdul Hamid II in the late 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And that was basically organizing local Kurdish tribal groups essentially to impose order in various uh, uh, Eastern mm-hmm. Anatolian districts basically directed against Armenian targets. And as, as well as you mentioned just in that answer there, Ataturk during the War of Independence very often referred to this, um, you know, Muslim, non-Muslim binary mm-hmm. as a yeah. kind of strategic yeah. tool, even explicitly mentioning, you know, Turkish Kurdish Brotherhood in this War of Independence. So that idea of the imperial or Republican centre trying to kind of bind Kurdish majority areas into the centre through the appeal to religious solidarity really does have a very deep heritage in Indeed. Exactly. I mean, since, you know, like if you look at the earliest Kurdish uprisings in the Ottoman period, you know, like early 19th century, even then, actually, the Ottoman Empire made very skillfully used religion as a tool to manipulate and subdue these uprisings. And what they did was, you know, they either used this card of uh, Muslim unity, Muslim fraternity, as in the example you gave, you know, like the Hamidiyya regiments, but also they 
they were, for example, uh, even earlier, if there was any Christian uprisings, let's say, in the region, then they would use Kurds to suppress those uprisings. And in order to motivate the Kurds, they would underline uh, Muslim fraternity. But they never allowed, for example, the, the, the Kurds in the region to fully have like independence or autonomy. Like It was only to the extent that they could use the Kurdish leaders in the region to suppress other uprisings that they used this like Muslim fraternity discourse. And the same, for example, they also did use the, the dichotomy of Alevi Kurds versus Sunni Kurds to their advantage too. For example, they were juxtaposing Alevi Kurdish tribes against Sunni Kurdish tribes. If that benefited the Ottoman ports strategies in the region. So yes, starting from a very early period, the Ottomans very skillfully manipulated this. And that kind of also continued in the Republican period. You find, for example, in the first 10 years of the Republic, for example, this emphasis on Muslim fraternity, people very much approach that period as a aggressive, secularizing period. But what they are trying to do in that period is more like creating a Turkish Islam than really secularizing things. Uh, like Islam is still there. And that's when you see, for example, this emphasis on Turkish Islam being different than Kurdish Islam, let's say. And that divergence between, yes, we are all Muslims, but this difference based on ethnicity is also very much pronounced. And I think there is like a continuation that one can see in the book. I also mentioned the upright in the early Republican period by Kurds, and most of those were suppressed as religious uprisings. You know, the main justification that was given was that they are trying to bring back Sharia, or they are reactionaries against Westernization, modernization, secularization. So it's very much, it's very much entangled. Like, even the closure of, for example, these madrasas that I mentioned earlier, these religious schools in 1924, they were mainly effective in the Kurdish region because the Kurdish ulamas were very much influential in the uh, religious field. And the state, by closing those uh, madrasas, it actually kind of managed to suppress both the religious leaders and the nationalist leaders of Kurds at the time. So yeah, I think both the Ottomans and the Republican elite, they deployed religion and ethnicity as they like, like as it's their purposes at the time. And we can definitely see a continuation in the way they approached it. And another key finding in the book is this perhaps surprising idea in this conflict, uh, in addition to its role as uh, this assimilative unifying role, mm -hmm. uh, religion has also acted as a tool of resistance. So um, mm -hmm. you, you see there Sunni Islam playing a, a really ambivalent role. It's both used by the authorities at various points as a as a strategy. Uh, and it's also used as a tool of resistance among mm -hmm. Kurdish nationalists. Just talk about uh, how religion has been used in that way by Kurdish actors as a, as a means of uh, resistance essentially to mm -hmm. uh, this unifying mm -hmm. strategy. Yeah, so, I mean, that was actually the starting point of the book, because in 2011, the Kurdish imams that I mentioned earlier, who wanted to give the Friday sermons in Kurdish, they started organizing these Friday prayers called civilian Friday prayers or civil Friday prayers. And what distinguished these prayers from the regular Friday prayers was that they took place in the streets rather than in state-run mosques, and the sermons were given in Kurdish. 
Kurdish. And that was when actually I kind of became more curious about what's going on there because my interest, my academic interest at the time ran in religion and nationalism and their intersection. And I was like, hmm, this is really interesting. This is an interesting development because we, we are very much used to, you know, like this dichotomy between secular and religious groups, you know, in the Turkish politics. But it was interesting to see this divergence between Sunni Muslim Kurds and Sunni Muslim Turks. So that's why I first wanted to go to the region to see, you know, what's happening there. And I wanted to interview these imams. And I, I, I took part in some of those Friday prayers, did some participant observation. And yes, in the end, like um, after interviewing these imams and observing what was going on, I came to the conclusion that yes, they were actually, to a certain extent, they could use Islam as a resistance tool against the government's assimilatory approach. Because in their mind, when the AKP government at the time underlined Muslim fraternity, Muslim unity, what they really did was to assimilate Kurds through Islam, right? Like they were saying that, yes, they underlined this, but, you know, if they are really sincere in their approach, then the Quran also says that we should be able to pray in our native languages. So if they are real Muslims, why are they not adhering by the Quranic teachings? So I think it really created them an arena that didn't really exist before, where they could challenge the government theologically. And that was something I think that didn't really happen before. Yes, there were some skirmishes like this between the secular governments and the religious groups, but it was really interesting to see this type of, you know, like who has the most authentic religious knowledge. It was not something that we had witnessed publicly before. And one thing that I want to mention here is that these Kurdish imams or meles, they were mostly affiliated with the Kurdish movement. They, of course, they told me that they are not affiliated with the Kurdish movement and, and that they were acting independently. Some of them told me that. But you can see, like, after being in the region and talking to different actors, you can see that, yes, they have some ties with the Kurdish movement. However, I think even with that in mind, even if they were affiliated with the Kurdish movement, what happened there was really this like religious field was being shaped in a way that did not really happen before by different religious actors. And what we saw is these different religious actors challenging each other based on their theological knowledge. Like they were citing Quranic words verses or uh, hadiths and they were just saying okay if they know these teachings why are they not implementing these so in that sense i think we could really define it as a tool of resistance like islam being used as a tool of resistance in the hands of these imams and meles because not only the ones who were not only the imams who were affiliated with the kurdish movement but also the diyanet appointed kurdish imams also underlie these same Quranic verses or same hadiths. Even the Diyanet appointed Kurdish imams also agreed with these Kurdish meles to a certain extent. I think that was something, as you said, that was a surprising finding, Islam being used as a tool of resistance, because we are very much used to Islam being used as an assimilation tool in Turkish history. And, and, and I mentioned in the book, like, these prayers, they lasted for two years, they ended in 2013, and in the end, the government allowed them to give Friday sermons in Kurdish in some villages, towns, or what have you. 
of course, that changed drastically, especially after 2016. Now everything is very much centralized again. In 2016, after the failed coup attempt and the emergency decrees, things have very much been centralized again. But for a very short time, at least, for the time it lasted, I think it really brought some change that we hadn't witnessed before. Um, it gave like much more autonomy to the Kurdish religious actors in the region. And I think it was at times even more effective than secular Kurdish discourse because the government couldn't really foresee this coming. So they had to take a step back and not alienate the Muslims in the region. Yeah, so in that sense, I think we could definitely think of it as a tool of resistance. Also, I wonder, it's also possibly worth mentioning that uh, this theme, again, it has deeper historical roots because you talk about in the book as well how many of the uh, revolts in Kurdish areas in the uh, late Ottoman and early Republican eras Mm -hmm. were also religiously motivated. So perhaps the most well-known one was the uh, Sheikh Said revolt of uh, 1925. Mm -hmm. And that was protesting, among other things, the uh, abolition of the caliphate. So Mm -hmm. a very kind of deep-rooted religious-based kind of resistance that we're seeing there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's interesting that the Sheikh Said rebellion was not mentioned that much by the Kurdish movement in its early years. And when I say the Kurdish movement, I say also in the book that it refers to a different, like both legal and illegal organizations formed by the Kurdish actors, but mostly, you know, affiliated with the PKK, which was established as a secular Marxist organization in 1978. And up until early 90s, you don't really see the PKK cadres mentioning the Sheikh Said rebellion, for example, because even in in their mind, it's a religious reactionary movement. And there is a lot of research uh, or literature, let's say, on whether it was nationalist or more Islamist or more nationalist. But still, there's no agreement on that. Something that it was more nationalist in nature and the other thing, its main objective was the foundation of an autonomous or independent Kurdistan. And still, I think it was interesting to see how it made a comeback in the Kurdish movement's discourse and how Sheikh Said became once again like a, a figure that was very much a prominent figure, let's say, in their discourse. And that shows, I think, the importance importance of Islam in the region, that any movement that's vying for support in the region needs to definitely, at one point, face this, you know, this reality that Islam is very strong in the region and that you cannot just ignore these figures. And the state, the Turkish state, for a long time, of course, also framed the Shay Said rebellion as a backwards religious reactionary rebellion. They didn't really frame it as a Kurdish national rebellion, but more as an Islamic one that took place because of the abolishment of the caliphate and the Sheikh al-Islam. So yes, I think that history is important and it's it's important to, to understand current day politics in the region. We definitely need to look back at that too. Of course, there's also one thing that often flies under the radar in these kind of discussions, and that is that the majority of Sunni Kurds are followers of the Shafi school of Islamic jurisprudence, Mm -hmm. uh, in contrast to the mainly Hanafi Sunni Turks. Mm -hmm. Generally, the the Shafi school is seen as being more exacting, uh, Mm -hmm. a slightly stricter interpretation of the religion. How important is this distinction, really, in terms of these broader themes that we're looking into? 
Well, it's a great question and one that, you know, uh, maybe I should have allocated more space in the book and I didn't. <laughs> But in my interviews with the Kurdish imams, I asked them this question and um, they said, you know, this does not really translate into that big of a difference in our in our daily practices of Islam or in our daily rituals. There are some, definitely there are some like uh, differences in the rituals, like to the extent that when you go to the mosque, like uh, how long the, the prayer will take place, the namaz will take place. For example, that's different for the Shafis and the Hanafis. However, when I present the book chapters of the book in uh, different settings there was a historian who said that she once interviewed a Shafi a religious leader who said that you know if it were up to the Hanafis if it came to that distinction you know if you were to have a fight between like Hanafis and Shafis he apparently said that these Hanafis could easily kill us all because we are Shafis but that wasn't something that I observed in my interviews or in the regional like in my like when I was attending the Friday prayers you know it didn't really come up as an important distinction but yes that's definitely there and of course this understanding of the Shafis being more strict and the Diyanet the Turkish presidency of religious affairs embracing a Hanafi approach is something that definitely differentiates these two groups but it even though I asked about it they didn't really allocate too much importance to it in their answers of course i don't know like i mean if a push comes to show maybe it will become a much more pronounced difference but it wasn't something that was attributed too much importance by these imams during my interviews now all this is quite salient at the moment really considering the current political climate because of course we have this very dominant strain of uh, turkish nationalism uh, essentially in this alliance between yeah. the akp and the uh, mhp currently ruling It could be seen as a real consecration of the, uh, the turkish islamic synthesis that we've mm -hmm. been talking about we've seen this gradual marginalization of kurdish mps in the akp for example and there are sort of new small conservative parties sort of emerging uh, trying to woo the Kurds potentially mm -hmm. there's been a bit of talk about that with the uh, the Gelecek party of Davutoglu and mm -hmm. uh, Deva of uh, Babajan mm -hmm. so just looking ahead looking at this broad political climate uh, of increasing nationalism in in government that doesn't seem to be going anywhere where where is all this going it's very hard to project forward but in the next five ten years can you detect any kind of uh, deeper social trends that are that will change the dial here or or how do you how do you see this mm -hmm. big broad question developing well <laughs> Whatever I say will be very speculative, of course. But yeah, definitely. I mean, with this change in the government's discourse towards a much more ultranationalist tone, the Kurds in the region, of course, they are, they they have been feeling very much alienated. But then again, there's an article in the book that I cite by Erdem Yuruk and Onur Günay, and uh, they look at um, how the coalition of AKP with the uh, ultranationalist MHP affected the votes in the Kurdish region and they say that you know uh, this alliance has translated into tangible gains for the AKP because yes they 
lost some votes among the Kurds, but they started receiving the vote of Turkish nationalists, Turkish ultranationalists, which has made up for the drop in the vote share among the Kurdish constituency, especially since the June 2015 elections. So there's that. And I think one thing that we should keep in mind, and I mentioned that in the book, is the uh, developments in Syria, which of course changed AKP's tone drastically. The, the establishment of a de facto autonomous Kurdish region in Syria's north by the name of Rojava really, I think, changed the game for the AKP. And that's when they really shifted the gears fully towards this securitist, more like security-oriented ultranationalist discourse. So I think as long as the developments in Syria are still taking place and, you know, like taking place in the sense that there is no final agreement about Syria's future. And as long as the government feels a Kurdish region in Syria's north, the existence of a, of a Kurdish state in, C- in northern Syria will threaten Turkey's future. I think that it will be really difficult to actually have a shift back, a uh, change towards peace negotiations. But of course, like Turkey is also, it's like a roller coaster. You never know what to expect. So things might change very fast. But for now, I don't really expect too much of a change. To the contrary, I'm expecting much more emphasis on this ultranationalist discourse, this intensification of this ultranationalist discourse, especially because the current government survives on this alliance with the MHP and also with some other right-wing groups who are also, again, anti-Western and very much shaped by a Turkish nationalist identity. So I think as long as Erdogan relies on their support to stay in rule, it will be very difficult to go back to the peace negotiations. But we'll see. Yeah, and one last bit of speculation here. Wonder if one particular way that the dynamics could be shifted in quite an unpredictable way would be if there is a military victory, essentially, for the Turkish Mm -hmm. forces. It seems like there's not so much fighting within Turkey anymore. The PKK doesn't seem to have the capacity to carry out uh, major attacks anymore on Turkish mm-hmm. security forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been that, that way for a number of years, and it does seem that the PKK is really on the back foot, at least within Turkey. Uh, and any clashes that do occur really happen elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, in northern Iraq and Kandil Mountains. So what, mm-hmm. I mean, pure speculation, but what would happen if there was some kind of military victory for Turkey on against the PKK on Turkish soil at least? Obviously, mm-hmm. there would still be this big, huge social divide that would uh, exist between Turkish and Kurdish citizens. But how could that potentially, do you think, change the, the evolution of this question? Well, yeah, I I kind of like talk about that a bit in the conclusion of the book. So when you look at the conflict resolution literature, I think Sri Lanka is the only case where a military victory was enough to establish, you know, some sort of like a peace. I mean, it was it wasn't really able to establish peace, but you know, where a military victory was at least possible. Uh, But even there, we see now some clashes and some kind of revival. But if you look at the literature, it is really difficult to establish like a military victory. And in the case of Turkey, it's, uh, I think, particularly difficult because when we look at what's happened, for example, after Öcalan was imprisoned in early 2000s, uh, there was for a time, like I think for about 
about five years or so, the PKK didn't have any activities in Turkey. They kind of went into withdrawal and uh, they were mostly, as you said, in the Kandil Mountains, but they had a comeback. So I think what is really difficult for Turkey to, to establish kind of this type of military victory is that, first of all, there are neighboring countries, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, where there are Kurds as well. So like Kurds do not only live in Turkey. So even if Turkey was able to kind of control the Kurds in Turkey, for the PKK, there is always some other enclaves to withdraw into in the neighboring countries. And this makes it, I think, difficult for Turkey to have a military victory. And then one other thing is that uh, for PKK, what happened, especially following 2015, uh, the summer of 2015, the PKK, when it carried the fight to city centers, when it shifted from guerrilla warfare to urban warfare, it really had a big loss. And the Turkish armed forces was really effective in pushing the PKK back from city centers. And we saw that, you know, where the PKK is most strongest is guerrilla warfare that's, you know, conducted in the mountains rather than city centers. And I think as long as the PKK does not kind of follow that path again like you know in terms of like carrying the fight to the city centers it could still I guess I mean I'm not a security expert but from what I see it could still maintain some sort of low level battle in the mountains because it's difficult you know like guerrilla warfare is always difficult for a state to suppress because there are the mountains and then they withdraw into mountains so it's it's really difficult to really as long as you don't like really fully destroy the mountains, then uh, there will always be some sort of haven for the fighters to move back to. And of course, um, in terms of human capital, the more the state represses the Kurdish population in the region, the easier it will be for the PKK to enroll new members for its cause. So because of these factors, I think that it is really difficult to have a military victory for Turkey. But again, it's always, yeah, there's always a possibility that, you know, I might be mistaken. And I, I really like this quote by Jonathan Powell, the chief British negotiator in the Northern Ireland peace process. And he, he says, negotiation is the only way to peace. And it's a question of when, not whether you talk with the terrorists. He used the terrorists in quotes because he says you might always see someone as terrorists. But if you want to really establish real peace, then you have to talk with them because you might even have military victory, but it doesn't really promise a long-lasting peace because you don't really address the cause of the disturbance. You just like kind of maybe silent uh, the dissent for a while, but it will always come back. And I think um, when you look at the literature on conflict resolution, you see that it's true that you might have a military victory, but it doesn't really guarantee peace. But then again, like when I say, like he says, yeah, you have to talk with these people. But the, the main condition, I think, is that those negotiations and the peace process should be transparent and it should be inclusive of all the different political groups and parties in the country. What was really problematic in the earlier peace process in Turkey was that everything was behind the doors. We didn't really know what was going on. It wasn't transparent. The other parties in the parliament were not involved in the peace process. So that type of peace negotiations will not be able to also establish peace, I think. So if you really want to have a long-lasting peace, it should be a transparent process and it should be accompanied by other necessary
necessary reforms towards democratization and also decentralization in the case of Turkey, I think. That was Gulay Tukmen. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 131. This is our last episode of Turkey Book Talk for this year. I just want to take the opportunity to say thank you really to everyone for lending your ears and listening to the podcast throughout 2020. It's been a very strange year for obvious reasons, but I think we've had some great episodes throughout 2020 and we're already looking forward to 2021 with some excellent guests already lined up. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter, or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out Turkey Recap, which has also had a great year. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk, in a couple of weeks wishing you a happy new year and again thank you very much for listening Bütün